Hey guys, and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. The first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. I'm your host, Nick Williams, and this week's show is brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Are you frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines? Are you tired of reading content meant for guys up north or in the Midwest? Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Books A Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. Alrighty guys, I'm very excited to be bringing y'all this week's episode. Today we're going to be doing a special segment. This is a deep dive into red-eye bass fishing. We got some really good feedback earlier this summer when we had Dr. Matthew Lewis on the show for a segment. Uh, For the unfamiliar, Matt is the author of Fly Fishing for Red-Eye Bass and Adventure Across Southern Waters, and he's to blame for my current infatuation uh, with the species. If you're like me and you're intrigued by a bass that thinks he's a trout, Matt's here to give you everything you need to know before you head north and start wading those Piedmont streams in search of Bama brookies. Uh, Whether you're a fly or a conventional fisherman, we're going to dive into what you need to know to be successful if you decide to complete the Red-Eye Bass Slam. Uh, Without further ado, here's Matt. All right, guys, we're here today with Matt Lewis. Uh, Matt is working on his PhD in genetics, and he has kind of become famous. He he won't call himself this, but y'all have heard of Dr. Deer. Uh, we're talking today with Dr. Red-Eye. Matt, how are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. We're going to make Dr. Red-Eye stick, too. <laughs> I feel like it already has, whether I whether I want it to or not. Uh, it's just kind of there now. Yeah, well, well, we had you on the on the show a while back, and we kind of did, you know, work in on the fishing report talking about red eye bass, and and fifteen minutes was just not enough to me to really talk about this species, but it was enough to I went and completed the Mobile Basin Slam and listened to some of your other podcasts, kind of educated myself a little bit better, and just kind of really fell in love with it. Just can't stress how much I enjoyed driving around on little backcountry roads and flicking flies in little teeny tiny clear water streams and catching these things so figured we'd have you back on and for listeners who maybe didn't catch uh the episode that we did with you the first time around just kind of give me the 101 what what is a red-eye bass anyway a red-eye bass is actually kind of a a general term that we use now to, to cover what is seven different species of bass and so you know, they're the smallest black bass. If you think about, you know, the cutthroat in the western United States, you've got all these different varieties where you've got, you know, west slope cutthroat and fine spotted cutthroat. And anyway, there's a bunch of different ones. You know, we've we've kind of determined that in red eye bass there's this, you know, they're not all the same. They're all genetically different. They all look a little bit different. Um, and there's enough differences between all of them to merit species status so it's just a, a small little black bass just like what you know largemouth smallmouth or anything else that lives in these small beautiful you know mountain streams kind of at the foothills of the Appalachians that stretch into Alabama Georgia and South Carolina a little bit of Tennessee and North Carolina but Alabama Georgia and South Carolina are the the main states that have populations of red-eye bass and and for the sakes of this conversation uh, what isn't a red eye bass? Because I know when I started posting pictures, uh, there were a lot of people saying that that they too had caught red eye bass, and then they would post pictures of things that weren't really 
Micropterus cusi or, you know, Micropterus talapusa, you know, what, what is an eratobass? Or, or even sometimes not Micropterus at all. I did see Um, some that were not Micropterus (laughs) at all. That's right. I saw some that were lepimids. So we haven't done ourselves any favors um, with, you know, the way we name things. Um, We have to name things in order to kind of group them and study them and, you know, things like that. And, you know, red-eye bass commonly do have a red eye. Um, and so that's kind of how they, they got that name. But also, you know, rock bass that's common in the Tennessee River drainage when, when you're smallmouth fishing, a lot of people will catch those in Alabama. And they also have a red eye and are commonly called red eye. And so you have this, you know, kind of back and forth with uh, people say, oh, yeah, I've caught those before. And, you know, they're, they're talking about rock bass. Or you've got people that just get confused. They may catch a, you know, a juvenile smallmouth bass or uh, even a small Alabama bass or spotted bass that, that happens to have a red eye. And just because it's a small fish with a red eye, it's a bass. It's a red eye bass to them. And, you know, the red eye is something that can, I mean, all fish species can have it. It's more of a, you know, something to do with temperature and stress things like that it it has nothing to do with you know being diagnostic for a certain species so there can be all sorts of fish that are confused with red eye because of that name and that feature but there's other things that we can talk about to help you you know differentiate whether or not you have a red eye bass in your hand or not there we go We'll we'll definitely we'll circle back to that. That's one of the things that I want to cover is is what are the reliable field marks for knowing that you've got a red eye bass. But uh the the goal of this podcast is is to kind of get people interested in in fishing for them. And we'll talk more about why I think we both think that's important here in a little bit. But give me give me the cliff notes. You know, you just said that it's the smallest of the bass species. And mm-hmm. why would you want to fish for a a small bass when you could go fish for a big bass map you got it it seems like you got it backwards yeah (laughs) yeah you know i I guess i'm not um i won't be too upset if i there's a lot of people that don't jump on the train of fishing for small bass because that'll keep the the waters nice and secluded for myself but no i mean it's it's totally different so i mean you know people that are fishing for large bass you know their goal is to catch a large bass and for me personally, I've always found something just kind of, you know, unique and uh, just like a childlike enjoyment of just getting in a creek in Alabama during the hot summer and the water's cool, so you're not as hot. Um, and just, it, it's almost like you're exploring new water um, every, every time you go fishing, because sometimes you are. Um, so you just get in these small mountain streams and and, and, and weight them with a fly rod and just th- throw the fly around and see what bites. I mean, you're not always going to catch red eye bass. There's a lot of panfish that sometimes are a little more aggressive or, you know, just more abundant in the waters that you're fishing. And so you might catch a lot of red breasted sunfish or bluegill or long ear, you know, those sorts of things. But, but every now and then you, you can tell you've hooked into something a little bit bigger with a little more heft that gives you a little bit more of a fight and, and it's usually a red eye bass. And so it's just, I think it's, you know, the, the places that fishing for those fish take you are, you know, very uh, wild and natural, which is something that we don't, you know, those are places we don't have a lot of in the world, much less Alabama. You know, there's been so much converted to, 
to agriculture or industry or urbanization. And so it allows you to kind of explore these wild places that we have left. And then it also just, the, the fish themselves are just, they're beautiful. They they don't look like most bass. They have a lot of color on them, a lot of blue and red and you know, depending on species, different colors. But they're just, uh, they're a lot of fun. They're aggressive, they're beautiful, and they live in, in pretty places. So it's, it's kind of a, a win all the way around. I, I definitely agree with what you said earlier about about it kind of having a childlike element to it in a in a positive way i mean i I think Mm -hmm. most outdoorsmen at some point if they were lucky they got to grow up playing in a creek you know cane pole fishing for whatever was in there flipping rocks over trying to grab crawfish you know building little dams uh swimming you know swinging across on a vine and as you get older i have found that uh, you know, fishing is a great way to interact with nature and in a in a way that you kind of lose as you're an adult. Because I have a lot of respect for, for people who can go out there and sit on a bench and soak up the scenery. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for those people because I guess as I've gotten older, that adult mind is kind of task focused. You feel like, well, I need to be doing something. And right. But it sometimes you need to stop doing things. You do need to stop and relax. And fishing is a chance to do something without really doing something. And you give it 30 minutes of walking that little mountain stream and you start off and you're like, okay, I'm on a mission. I'm going to go catch, catch fish. And you do end up in a situation where you're just looking and you're going, wow, this is a fun place to be. You know, like this is just a good day. I don't really care if I catch fish. I come here to catch fish. That's catching fish was what inspired me to wake up at two o'clock in the morning and drive to Birmingham. <laughs> but now that right. I'm here, I don't really care if I catch one. Be nice, but yeah, there's a little more depth, you know, that you. So, I mean, I think everyone knows that, you know, most of our, our reservoirs and lakes in Alabama are, are not natural. You know, we dammed up the rivers to make those. And there may be one or two that are actually natural lakes in the whole state. And so when you're on these rivers and streams, you know, these are natural environments. And for the most part, they're undisturbed. I mean, that's not entirely true because we we have stocked things and moved things around. But, you know, these species assemblages, and I'm not talking about just fish. I mean, Alabama is a, a very, very biologically diverse state with, you know, just numerous, numerous species of turtles of crayfish and you know snakes and you see all those things when you're on these streams because again you're in natural places that are you know mostly protected from development and things like that and so all all those parts and pieces you know of what what is wild Alabama is is still there and that you know from plant life to uh you know like I said turtles and then all the way down to the fish and the water that you're pursuing um it's just a it's a lens into a world that you just don't get to see very often anymore yeah it's i I think at this point everybody has heard that information has trickled down how biologically diverse alabama is Mm -hmm. it's really hard to get a good sense of the scale i mean i I think last i checked we had over a thousand species of vertebrates and like five thousand species of, of vascular plants and yeah. They're, they're still discovering every year somebody right. is is finding a new fungus or or a new species of ant or moth or beetle 
muscles, you know, I think, I think we're supposed to have like the, the most diverse population of muscles anywhere in, in the country. And you in do see world, that. Yeah. On, yeah. Yeah. You see, and I know like turtles, that's a big thing here in the Mobile Tensile Delta and on the Cobra River system, we've got turtles. We have a high number of endemic species that aren't found anywhere else mm-hmm. in the world. And then we also, sadly, the statistics that I've read say that we also lead, you know, we lead in biological diversity. And I guess the flip side of that is is we also lead in in extinction rates for the past 100 years. Right. So I think that's where we both share a, a desire to show people what's there so that you appreciate it, you know, and when the new strip mall comes in or whatever, uh, you know what the trade-off is, you know. Right. Yeah, but and and we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But as as far as diving into more on on red eye bass, mm-hmm. what do we know about them? Because like I I write you know for an outdoor magazine, and you know we write all the time. Like just this just in the past two weeks, I can tell you we've written how to catch articles on roosterfish, tuna, sailfish, red snapper, crappie. Uh, largemouth bass that's just what we've covered that's a week's worth of work for us is writing about all these species and telling people their you know kind of their their yearly pattern and i know that's something a lot of sportsmen care about they want to know what the spring pattern is the summer pattern and that kind of hinges around you know spawning temperature travel routes whether it's in a lake or a river you know if they migrate or just if they move from one area of the lake or another you seem like the guy who could tell us if anybody can tell us what what red eye bass do, kind of what the life cycle of a red eye bass and what their calendar year looks like. What what do they get up to? Yeah, so you know we don't know a lot about them. There's you know we have some general information and you know maybe some like you know we know the range that they spawn in things like that. But in general, these fish are you know in the the upper headwater streams or the upper reaches of streams in the river systems where they're native. So we're talking the Cahaba, Black Warrior, Tallapoosa, and Coosa in Alabama. And generally, you know, small, maybe medium-sized streams um, is the type of habitat that they prefer. And and oftentimes there's not a lot of overlap between them and other black bass in these streams. I mean, there are some streams where, where they are and even some rivers where they overlap more. But in general, you know, they kind of are the predominant black bass species as you move up into these these headwater streams. And, you know, there's some evidence that they do make some seasonal uh, spawning migrations. So there's been some work done on the Tallapoosa River, uh, you know, which is heavily dammed. So, it's you know, it's hard to know if that's a if that's what they naturally would do or if that's a response to, you know, whatever the flow schedule is, you know, based on those hydroelectric dam releases and things like that. But there's been some evidence in some small natural streams back in the 1950s that they actually will, um, you know, migrate upstream in the spring and, and remain upstream until the water starts getting, you know, cold, late fall, winter, and they'll migrate back down. Now, do they just migrate back down into, you know, a larger river or, you know, how far do they go? But those are things we really don't know. But there there does seem to be a seasonal movement that is somewhat geared around the spawning season. So not unlike uh, shoal bass, another, you know, river species that we know migrates 
to spawn in the shoals of rivers, make seasonal migrations to do that, and then they remain there for a little while, then migrate back out. So it's very possible that red-eyed bass do the same thing. We just, we don't have any studies to really confirm that. Um, so that's, that's a big need um, because we need to understand, you know, where all they move in order to, to better protect them and manage them. But so they, you know, typically hang out in these streams for the most of the year. Now, when wintertime comes, you know, wherever they migrate to or whether they just stay where they are, they tend to hold in deeper water, a little more sluggish like most black bass in the winter. Uh, they just, you know, they're cold blooded. So with cold water, um, it kind of slows their metabolism way down and, and they just kind of become pretty lethargic. Um, they don't move a whole lot. They don't eat a whole lot. They're just kind of maintaining until the water warms up. And they uh, typically spawn in the spring. I think uh, the range is 62 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit, which, you know, oddly enough, is, is kind of what largemouth bass, I think their range is, is usually reported as well. So, you know, is that something that was just applied to red-eye bass because they're a bass or is that legitimate again we really don't have a lot of data on that but that we do know they spawn in the in the spring typically may and june and sometimes even into july but mostly may and june so that that's kind of you know what they do they eat a lot they're they're very aggressive little fish you know the streams where they live there's not a lot of productivity typically so they they can't pass up a meal. They're opportunistic feeders like most bass, so they um, they eat a lot of insects, both aquatic and terrestrial, adult and larval forms of each of those. So, you know, that's early in the spring. There's a lot of hatches of, you know, mayflies and uh, damselflies and things like that. They'll eat both the larval and adult forms of those. They eat uh, as the Later in the summer, earlier into the fall, they'll eat a lot of the terrestrial insects that get blown into the stream. So uh, a lot of grasshoppers, like most bass, they always, you know, they won't turn down a crayfish. Um, and we have a lot of those in these streams where they live. So they're, I mean, they'll, they'll eat, you know, the same things that most other bass eat. But I think there's a little bit more of a preference for topwater insects. They just, they seem to be very tuned to feeding on on the, the water surface. So I think that's why they're such a great fly rod fish because they're already looking up. And so you throw a, a popper or something like that. I mean, they hit it within a few seconds usually or, or instantaneously. So that's really kind of all we know besides that there's, you know, they're also slow growing. Um, they're the slowest growing black bass. They don't get very big. A, um, you know, they max out probably around 11, 12 inches. Um, and it takes them about 10 years or more to get to that size. So they're, they're very slow growing fish and, and just, just don't get very big. Once they reach a certain length, they might get fatter, but they're not going to get any longer. So that's kind of the, the summary of everything that we know about red eye bass. <laughs> well, and that, that is a lot more than you can really dig up on, on the great Google. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. it's weird in 2023. You get used to having all of the information right there at your fingertips, and I can tell you, it's it's really not there. You know, the the Wikipedia yeah. page for a red eye bass is a lot shorter than the Wikipedia page for a black bass, or, or for a largemouth bass, or a flounder, or something like that. Why do you think that is? Why is there just kind of that gap in knowledge there for that species? Well, there, you know, it's it's not easy to study them. You know, they live in places that are hard to get to. 
And so, you know, it takes a lot of time and effort and, and money to study them in these types of habitats where they live. There's a lot of gear that has to be toted in. And there just there wasn't many people fishing for them. Um, so they're, they're not necessarily a, a popular sport fish that have commanded, you know, that knowledge like a, a lot of the other black bass have. You know, there's, we know everything there is to know almost about largemouth bass and smallmouth bass and spotted bass. But, you know, red-eye bass are just one example of, you know, multiple endemic range-restricted black bass that we just don't know a lot about. And I think that's, you know, that's been changing over the last decade. And there's been some really positive strides, but there's still a long way to go. And, you know, just you think about, you know, because of their size, you know, the technology that we're, we're limited to working with right now. So, like, if you wanted to do a tagging study or you wanted to do a, uh, a radio telemetry study or something like that, you know, you can implant, you know, a, a transmitter or something like that in a sturgeon or even a largemouth bass and not have them die because they're big enough to handle the surgery and the, the thing being in them. You, you cut up in a seven-inch red-eye bass and you put a three- or four-inch cylindrical, you know, object in it, there's probably going to be some, some downside to that. And a lot, oftentimes in these studies where red-eye bass have, you know, they've tried to do some tagging studies and things like that, they, they just lose the fish. The fish dies because it, they just can't handle that kind of – so until the technology improves, you know, in some way we can study them better. It's going to be hard to study them because of their size. Also, many of the studies that we do have, you know, have been like state agency type studies or, or university studies even where it's just been kind of a, you know, report has been written to summarize the findings that were, you know, turned into the fisheries chief or something like that. So that, that information wasn't necessarily published in an academic journal to get the information out there. So you have a lot of times where, you know, people will do a master's project on red eye bass or something like that and they'll never publish it. So their thesis is available if you can get access to it, uh, which is typically hard unless you're, you know, in academia and you can access those things for free. Or it's just in somebody's desk or on their hard drive that just it just never gets out to the public. So there's, you know, I think we're we're trying to form these collaborations and 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 helping people get that data out. Um, that's something I'm continuing to work on through a lot of my work now. You know, we've we've got a lot of aging growth data on red eye bass that we collected as part of my study. So we're trying to analyze that data to get something out there on the age and growth, just to kind of you know verify and and validate the fact that they are very slow growing you know, in a formal way, instead of just, we know that because there's been studies done and there's some data, but it's not published, it's not available. And so we're trying to, to make that more available and more mainstream. So I think those are all factors that have kind of, you know, just made it where uh, there's just a huge knowledge gap on basic life history traits of this fish. And, and hopefully, as we continue to, to grow awareness for the species of red-eye bass that exist and how special they are to, to Alabama and the Southeast in general that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get more funding and, and, and you know, start filling in some of those gaps. We're going to take a quick break. Y'all take a minute to check out some of the businesses that keep this show free for you. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by 
fish bites. Whether you're hitting the sand with set rigs, using traditional scent strips for pompano, or fishing the flats and marshes for speckled trout, redfish, and flounder, Fish Bites has something for you. Family-owned and operated in St. Augustine, Florida, they pride themselves on making reliably consistent fishing products for anglers of all ages all around the world. Fish Bites baits and lures are made with pride in the Sunshine State here in USA. Check out the full line of scented saltwater and freshwater baits at fishbites.com. And by Baker Metalworks and Dixie Supply. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks offer numerous items to help get your project done right the first time. They carry a variety of different panel profiles and your choice of colors and gauges with all the matching trim and accessories. They also offer a full line of hardware items and post-frame building design. Their friendly and knowledgeable sales representatives are always willing to help answer any questions or concerns you may have. Contact them with any questions or to get a free estimate today. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters. So the little bit of research that I did and what kind of surprised me because you have these are small fish and they're in mountain streams that while they're, you know, there's some biodiversity, but when you have rock, a lot of times there's not, what's the word I'm looking for? Like as far as the biological load, right? Like I know I've, I've heard that term thrown around, like talking about Lake Martin, you know, since it's artificial lake. You know, it's not like there's mm-hmm. lots of silt and mud. You don't you don't see a lot of weeds at the shoreline and stuff like that. So you don't have a lot of plankton. And just as a whole, there's there's a little bit less, you know, biological mass in that area. And and with these creeks, like what I found is there's fish in them, but they're not getting huge, you know. And there's there's not a lot of fish. Right. Like it may seem like there's more fish because you're looking at all the fish that are in there. You know, they're not hiding in twenty to sixty feet of water somewhere. So it, it kind of surprised me, like on paper, if somebody goes to research red eye bass, two pieces of information that are there are that according to the the IUCN kind of conservation status rating, they're listed as least concern. And if you mm-hmm. go on the Alabama DCNR page and you look at it, they're considered a black pass and you can keep 10 of them a day. Right. Is, is that something that you feel is kind of accurately reflects the condition of of that fishery no i don't and you know i have a lot of data that would support you know that not being true again it's just that there there hasn't been a lot of effort put into you know kind of quantifying some of these species needs and habitat needs and things like that and so just because they're prevalent in some waters doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing okay. Um, and there's been some research back in the, I think it was 1970s, where they looked at, because of the growth rate of red-eye bass, if you were to harvest a, a 200 millimeter fish, which is now close to eight inches, you know, you could easily fish out a stream keeping 10 fish, 10 red-eye bass, you know, if you, if you do that every time you go out fishing which is well within your legal limit. But, you know, is that going to be sustainable, especially when we look into, you know, a lot of the what my research has shown in the Cahaba and Black Warrior Basin specifically, there's been a lot of decline of red-eye bass from their, you know, their former state, former population sizes, mostly due to, you know, habitat destruction and also hybridization with Alabama bass, um, which is another native. And there, there's, you know, we're kind of working through some of that data now to determine 
are they hybridizing due to habitat disturbance? So more sedimentation, more um, urbanization, things like that. Is that leading to factors that promote hybridization between these two native species? And so there's, you know, there's a lot of data out there that are kind of pointing to, you know, it's certainly being a, a fish that we should be concerned about. I just don't think it's, I don't know if we're not beating the drum loud enough or um, if it's still just kind of a small fish that no one really cares about. So it's not getting the attention. You know, I, I don't really know the answer for, for why it's considered that. But I will say that, you know, based on a lot of the research that I've done, which has been funded by Alabama's Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. So, I mean, I, I certainly appreciate their their willingness to do it and have worked with a lot of their biologists to collect samples and, and things like that for my, my studies. And they're aware of some of the, you know, effects of the red-eye bass populations in Alabama, specifically those black warrior and Cahaba populations, where there just, there doesn't seem to be as many of them as there used to be. And what populations do exist are full of hybrids between them and Alabama bass. And so they're, they're definitely looking into it. They've tried to um, start capturing broodstock fish from those drainages to have them genetically tested so they know that they're spawning pure red-eye bass and then trying to see if they can spawn those in a hatchery so that they can, you know, if need be, stop those back in into those areas where they, they used to be or, you know, just kind of have that that part of the, the puzzle ready if it's needed. Um, so there is some work going on. Like I said, it's just not on the airwaves or, you know, on, on Wikipedia yet. Sure. And, yeah, and I want to take a minute. There's back. some work going on. I, I want to want to clarify just for anybody listening. And I know it's super popular, particularly in the state of Alabama, but I've got friends all over the country and it's always really popular to be a heavy critic of your state's DCNR program. Um, it's, it's just easy mm-hmm. to do, right? To see a problem, but like, oh, well, they should fix it. And it's, you never see, I had somebody tell me a long time ago that good work never gets any credit because good work doesn't get noticed. If everything's working, when your car runs, there's nothing to notice, you know, when, when the engine starts right. knocking, you instantly pick up on that. So DCNR does a lot of things that are great and nobody ever hears of them because they're great and everything works great. And the species is being managed, you know, correctly and, and the environment is being taken care of. And with so much biological diversity in Alabama, it's a really superhuman, impossible task to really keep track of everything, especially when, you know, when you really think about it, a lot of the techniques that we have, like the, the science itself is not that old. You know, it's only been within the right. past hundred years or so that we've really gained the ability to do the research that we're capable of today. And it takes time to fill in those gaps, right? It's a, it's a steady progression. It's not like all of the research is just done. So right. I definitely, I don't, I don't want to anybody to misconstrue this as, as really a criticism of anybody with DCNR or as a criticism of any of the universities that do this study, we're just kind of pointing out that, you know, even in 2023, there are gaps in knowledge and and they can have, you know, bad effects. And it's important to, that everybody, you know, stay motivated, stay interested, curious to learn, make sure that all of those programs receive the funding that they need and make sure that there's public support for those programs. Right. We'll put in that and disclaimer echo- because I know it's it's popular to jump on the bandwagon and I, I do some work with some of the guys <laughs> That's right. are, and I know they get kind of browbeaten and we definitely don't want them to get discouraged and just throw their hands up and walk away from it. So, Right. And, and to echo what you said, I mean, Alabama, 
you know, Department of Conservation and Natural Resources probably has one of the toughest jobs in the country because, like you mentioned, of the biological diversity that we have here. And so, you know, their job is to to manage those natural resources, you know, for the, for their own intrinsic value, but also for, you know, people that like to fish and hunt and recreate, you know, that consume these different resources. And so it's a really hard balancing act and they've got their work cut out for them because the money that's generated by license sales is ultimately what goes back into funding things like, you know, what I did with red eye bass. Um, that was primarily generated on, you know, sport fish restoration dollars. And, sure. you know, they've got to be able to do that, but they've got to sell licenses. And if they don't sell licenses, then the money for the research isn't there. And so you got to keep your, your anglers happy. So they'll continue to buy licenses and, and fishing gear and things like that. So it's a it's a really tough balancing act. So I, I don't um I don't envy them at all. Uh they have a really <laughs> tough job. But yeah. but yeah, I think there's a lot of things they do that like you mentioned, they just they don't get the appreciation they deserve. And so yeah, I mean my my hat's off to them. They do a great job. Um and, and it's easy for, you know, anyone to point out where they could do their job better. But I think you know, it's not just them. Like we mentioned, you know, there's universities and things like that. Uh, Alabama Power, where reports are written that have data from studies that have been done. They just they just don't get published so that you know that it's accessible by by the public, sure. at least without having to pay for it. So I'd I'd like to see that happen a little more often. And you know, again, I'm kind of working to make sure that we get what we have out there and trying to collaborate with other scientists that have done similar work with red-eye bass, maybe even in other places like the Savannah river system or folks at Clemson doing that kind of work to kind of get some of those, maybe combined data sets to have a more powerful data set to, to publish. And so we're continuing to kind of work on all those things as well. And so we're, we're just as guilty. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's a really huge task. And uh, I want to circle back to what you were saying earlier about how, you know, the American conservation model is is really built in a big way on those license sales, like you said, at least the right. state, you know, sponsored port of that hinges in a big way upon license sales. And I would encourage any sportsman to, uh, we're not going to dive into it on the podcast because of time constraints, but look up the Pittman-Robertson Act, look up the Dingle-Johnson Act and familiarize yourself with that because what Matt's saying is absolutely right. The you know, there's long story short, there's basically a tax on sporting goods, uh, marine gas, firearms and ammunition sales, and that tax is collected at a federal level. And then the money that states raise selling licenses, uh, the licenses that they sell then make them eligible for some of that federal money. And that is what funds the lion's share of state level conservation and environmental management. And I think that's that's why you see that we know so much about largemouth bass or crappie or white-tailed deer or turkeys. You know, there's there's so mm-hmm. much more money to study that compared to something that doesn't have a real recreational use. And and that's right. a topic people have very strong thoughts on that we're kind of, I think, culturally kind of looking at that model and, and seeing what we need to do to tweak it or, you know, just make sure that that fits changing needs because this is a fairly young program really we're really the first country to ever do something like that so we're, we're still like a lot of things in america we're the experiment 
<laughs> we're kind of making it yeah. up as we go. But I think the big takeaway is that there is, if if you were responsibly using that resource, that's that's a benefit, right, Matt, to to the species. Right. Like the more people fish for red eye bass, as long as they do that in a sustainable way, they don't need to go out and be keeping ten of them of the day. But if you go and you catch a few, and you know, catch and release and take a picture. And and you're buying that fishing license and you're buying that new fly rod, that money does in a small way help what both what people like Matt are doing and what the state is doing like that. That is a plus one for bass. So with that being said, for, for people who want to contribute and, and maybe they don't have a PhD in genetics and they don't work for the state, <laughs> for, for regular Joes like me who just like to go catch fish, but let's let's talk Matt about how you go about doing that because it's it's really different the gear i've found is is not really conventional tackle because they're so small and because mm-hmm. they live in such small streams what what are you using when you go catch them i mean i know you're not using a seven and a half foot long medium heavy uh frogging rod you know power fish no, little streams no. and, and kind of like i've told you before i mean i you know i have some general um ideas for conventional gear because i i don't I don't pick up anything but a flutter rod these days just because that's what I enjoy. But I do know that, you know, an ultralight rod, you know, what, what a lot of people would have, uh, I think that they would call their creek rod. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't have any idea what the lengths or anything like that are for those, but, you know, just small spinning rod with, you know, rooster tail type thing or some kind of little spinner bait, you know, just, I've, I've seen a lot of red eye bass. I fish with some guys that, don't fly fish. And so we'll, we'll kind of fish together. And of course they always catch more fish and sometimes bigger fish than me, but that's beside the point. They use a lot of just drop shot worms. I mean, just, it, it's still bass fishing, you know, the, the same things you would do in a larger river or lake, just size it down. So small crankbaits that, you know, the little uh, rebel crawl crankbaits, small spinner bait, inline spinners, uh, rooster tails, all that kind of stuff works really great you know buzz baits that are kind of smaller and can be really productive but for me personally i mean i, I you know i just i'm biased obviously but i think fly fishing is just about some of the most fun you can have fishing for these fish and so um i typically use anywhere from a two to a four weight fly rod so fly rods are you know uh they have a a weight which kind of determines the size flies that they could throw zero being the smallest and you know goes up to i think 14 maybe even larger that you would you know throw for selfish or something right um and so a two to four weight kind of your classic you know smaller trout smaller bass panfish type tackle for fly rod so um and you always match your reel to your fly rod weight so if you have a four weight fly rod you need a four weight reel Sometimes reels are sold, you know, two to three weight or three to four weight. You know, there's ranges, so you could it can work on both. But anyway, you match your your reel weight to your rod weight. Same with the line. You know, you'll buy a line for a fly rod that is weighted, and it'll be you know two weight, four weight, three weight, whatever. You buy the same weight line as your rod. So if you have a four weight rod, you need four weight line for this type of fishing for red eye bass. I don't think you ever would need anything besides 
what's called weight forward floating line. And that's just a, a floating line that has a taper that is good for, you know, throwing the poppers and things you would throw for bass. And it doesn't have to be a bass specific line. I mean, you can get, you know, trout line, whatever, just as long as it's weight forward floating, it'll be fine for this. And then once you have your, your rod, your reel, your line, your line oftentimes will have a loop on, on the terminal end. And so you will put a leader on that. And so there's a lot of different options for that. So the two schools of thought are a tapered leader, which you can, you can buy. So these oftentimes are, you know, say 20 pound mono that tapers down to maybe eight pounds at the end. And then, you know, once you fish these and you lose a couple of flies and things like that, and you cut back, you know, you're going to have to like blood knot on more eight pound tippet on the end or something like that. Um, but I prefer a furled leader, which is essentially just a twisted monofilament leader. And you can buy these, you know, or make them yourself. I buy them. Um, but they're typically, you know, range in, in length. Um, so I'll buy a five to seven foot furled leader that has a, a ring on one end and a loop on the other. So you loop to loop fly rod to your, your furled leader. And on the, the terminal end of the furled leader, there's a ring and you can just quench knot on, you know, six to eight pound mono as tippet. And I'll easily add another foot and a half, two feet to that, and then tie your, your fly directly onto the end of that tippet, and, and you're ready to go. I mean, you, that's all you need, really, is a you know, fly rod, maybe some extra tippet material. I use those really small spools of just strand or trialing six, eight-pound monofilament and, you know, a couple poppers, and you're good to go. That's all you need. It is something that I have found is that uh, that, that was – Something I found out was when I was buying tippet, it is substantially cheaper to buy a mono or fluorocarbon than it is to buy that designated <laughs> nice eight little reel of Orvis tippet. I got to looking at that, and on oh, day one, yeah. I was just like, uh, I mean, I've got four, yeah. I've got that Mr. Crappie four pound mono, and I think I got about <laughs> 2,000 yards of it, and I paid about $10 for it, and they want $12 for that. Like, and like, it's like 30 yards, probably, you know. Yeah, yeah, I was like, well, you know, the, time. the small yeah. tippet rules are, are thirty yards, and yeah, yeah, anywhere from you know eight to to fifteen bucks, and then <laughs> I did. I looked at it, and that. I was like, well, I may just be an ignorant redneck from South Alabama, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure I got the same stuff on the spool at my house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the so for people that aren't aware, I mean, the main difference between like like actual tippet material that you would buy at a fly fishing store versus you know just your regular six or eight pound mono is that tippet is oftentimes thinner diameter. And so, but also, but like same pound strength. So right. it's just essentially a smaller, but equally strong option. And so somehow they think that merits a, uh, quite a bit price increase. I, I don't buy tippet anymore. If I'm going trout fishing, I'll buy tippet because those are finicky fish. But for, for warm water fishing, you just, simply do not need it um you would be perfectly fine fishing for just about anything in alabama using regular old monofilament six to eight pound for bass all the way up to 20 30 pound for striper i mean it, it, you know 
all mono. Uh, you can use fluoro if you're if you're doing you know subsurface streamer fishing something like that. But for topwater fishing, six eight pound monofilament for red eye bass is is all you need. Absolutely, and uh, and I know Matt, you you usually you're fishing. I think I've I've heard you say before you're fishing with a pretty not not just a lightweight fly rod, but a pretty short one, right? Like a seven seven and a half. Yeah, so like your standard fly rod length is typically nine feet. I prefer if I'm if I'm fishing a river like the Tallapoosa River, I'll use a nine foot, you know, five or six weight rod, sometimes even seven. But if I'm if I'm fishing a small stream where I'm specifically targeting red eye, and that's probably the only thing I'll catch. Besides panfish, I typically use a, a seven and a half foot, two or three weight rod. And um, you know, I just want to tell people too that I mean, fly rods can can be incredibly expensive, just like conventional fishing i mean i have no idea what those rods cost but i remember thinking one over fifty dollars was a lot to me growing up right and they've, you know, they've got a little more expensive. <laughs> they've got a little more expensive but you can still buy some yep. that are you know the whole combo for 30 to 50 bucks but with a fly rod i mean the cheapest fly rod that i've seen typically is around a hundred dollars and they they go up drastically from there now one of the best things you can get i think for starting out and I did this myself. I fished with a Cabela's CGR. It's their glass rod. And I fished with that rod for probably two years. I bought a two weight. I think it was six and a half foot uh, two weight Cabela's CGR. I mean, on sale for 50, 60 bucks, something like that. And I used that rod for two years, red eye fishing, because I loved it. I just really absolutely loved that rod. And you don't have to get an expensive reel because essentially all at that size all your reel is doing is holding your line it's just a line holder basically and so you don't have to get any you know super expensive when you can get a cabela's reel to match it and the thing about these rods is that you know they're cheap but you know there's no warranty or anything like that you can get with some of the bigger rod makers that cost more money but just for trying out fly fishing your initial investment is pretty low um, with that type of rod and like i said for red eye fishing pan fishing you know you get a three four weight Cabela CGR, and that's all you need. You know, you'll you'll have a ball with that. So I would recommend starting cheap. And I can tell people too. So this this is where I'll I'll weigh in a little bit. And usually it's the host. I I try not to run my mouth too much, but uh, I, I will since I I started fishing for them, and I did not spring for a fly rod yet. I can add to what Matt was saying about conventional tackle. So the first red eye bass I caught, I caught on conventional tackle because I wanted to just see what i was getting myself into i suspected it would be similar to some of the small bass creek fishing i've done here in south alabama and my go-to creek rod uh, for people listening in if you have like a casting crappie rod like i have a ultralight seven footer uh graphite rod and i think it was a cabela's rod as well i think it's one of their like higher end like pro series rods but a cheap rod i don't think it cost me 70 dollars. and then i had a Dial of fuego 1000 size and it's spooled with four pound high-vis mr crappie and i usually fish with about a seven foot four pound fluorocarbon and that was the perfect setup it was short enough you could cast it was light enough you can throw really small one sixteenth is usually about the heaviest jig head i throw and i throw all the way down to a 164th and crappie jigs um i went up there with some crappie jigs i went up there with some top water baits if you're familiar with like the rebel crick hopper little stuff like that maps inline spanners a beetle spin 
I know everybody's got a beetle spin sitting in their tackle box. A small one thirty seconds out beetle spin is is red eye magic. Mm-hmm. All of all of those will work really well. And then I dipped my toe into the fly fishing thing with a ten car rod, and I got to say I fished next to uh, my uncle who was fishing with a seven foot six three weight, and at no point fishing for red eye did I feel like a ten car rod was really a handicap. Uh, on the small streams where we were, and a tin car rod for people who aren't familiar, I think a cane pole, but but mine weighs about an ounce and a half, and it's twelve foot long. And you mm-hmm. you can flick a heavy fluorocarbon with a fly on the end of it, a little tippet, and a fly. And I was fishing flies, and that works really well. A longer rod um, in tight canopy, I, I think there'd be an advantage with a little shorter three weight, like Matt is talking about, but. Nice thing about a tin car rod is you don't have to buy a reel and you don't have to buy a line. You can buy the rod, you can buy some fluorocarbon, you can buy some flies, and you're in the game for hundred bucks. And it's a little yeah. easier. Um, I can I've played with casting a fly rod a little bit. It's much more intuitive to cast that tin car rod, and you'll start catching some fish. So that's those are your tackle options. If you got conventional tackle, take your brim rod or your crappie rod. Uh, don't take your bass rod. Uh, just take your little ultralight spinning reel. Get you a tin car rod get you a fly rod like Matt's talking about and you can go wear them out and we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to kind of talk about um, how to find red eye bass since I know that's something not a lot of people are familiar with and then we'll talk about some general fishing tips with Matt. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Killer Dock. Today we're going to profile another common form of dock dysfunction, dirty dock. Have you ever cleaned up a nice mess of fish and then watched your wife's face in disgust when she sees your dirty dock as a result? It's happened to all of us who are cleaning fish on old, wooden fish cleaning tables that don't slope toward the water. You need dock enhancement. Killer Dock fish cleaning stations are marine-grade aluminum coated with a ceramic finish that makes cleaning your dirty dock a cinch. The scales and slime drain directly into the water, through the legs, or through the slots. You choose the style. Check out the best fish cleaning stations known to mankind at KillerDock.com. And by Texas Hunter. Every detail of the Texas Hunter Wrangler hunting blind has been designed for your comfort. Fully carpeted walls and ceiling provides a scent and noise barrier, while sealed windows keep bugs and pests from joining you on the hunt. A solid galvanized steel roof is sure to protect you from the elements and will never leak or rust. The Wrangler is available in the ground model or with a 4-foot or 8-foot tower model available for extra-wide, sturdy stairs. Visit TexasHunter.com to check out their wide variety of premium outdoor products. Built in America since 1954. Matt, before we move on to talking about some of the the techniques, and then this kind of blends into it, I think, a little bit. You really only fish one fly most of the time that that you go fishing for red eyes. Is that right? Yeah, I would say 90% of the time I'm fishing a boodle bug popper. So, and... Yellow or chartreuse because those are the only two colors that work. Okay. So there's there no 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 no. So there's I have several questions. So I down here, it's kind of hard to get a hold of boogle bugs and I kind of ran out of time and I wasn't able to order some. And so I fished some bets. And I can tell you that a bets popper will also catch them. Now, and I'm sure I'm sure you knew that. I'm sure that you've fished a bets popper yeah, because they're in every they're in every bass pro shop everywhere. Even if people don't really carry fly tackle, what I have found is that most bait shops have some bets poppers. 
Why do you fish a Booglebug? I know that they're a local Birmingham-based company. Is it kind of a loyalty to a local brand, or is there anything about that Booglebug that makes it a better fish catcher than the other poppers on the market? Well, a little bit of both. So starting out fishing, I, I just thought it was really cool that this premium fly fishing popper was being, well, I thought it was being made in Alabama. It's not being made in Alabama, but it is an Alabama company. Right. And I just, I was like, yeah, if I'm going to buy a popper, I'd rather buy one from somebody in Alabama. Um, so it's kind of, you know, supporting local in a way initially, but having fished with a bunch of different poppers, whether it's bets or, you know, some you buy in an Orvis store or that you just, you know, see uh, online, different websites, things like that. I mean, there's all kinds of different poppers. There's, there's foam poppers, there's cork poppers, there's, I mean, endless amounts. Um, and I really liked the durability of the Booglebug popper. Um, just something about like the, I seem to not lose as many fish. I mean, they use really high quality, sharp hooks. Um, they have their cork poppers and they have this kind of, you know, of course, proprietary, almost like an enamel coating over the, the cork body that was just really durable for, you know, red eye fishing. Cause you're, you know, you're casting, slapping the fly against bedrock and, you know, things like that all day, getting hung in trees and having to yank it out. You know, there's just a, there's a lot of things that, that fly goes through that you're just not going to put a fly through if you're just fishing, you know, the edges of a lake or something like that. Sure. And so it, it held up really well. Now there, you know, I think there's been some, some quality issues and some questions about quality with Google bugs in the recent, you know, couple of years. So I'm not going to mislead people and say it's the best thing since sliced bread because clearly there's, there's been some issues with quality. However, you know, I still use them predominantly, um, even with some of the quality issues that people have experienced. But I will say that, you know, I think it's just top water in general. Uh, that's, that's a confidence fly for me, but there's also a tire in Alabama, uh, Wade Blevins, and his father created the Sam's One Bug, which is essentially just a little foam cylinder that forms the body of a fly on a hook that has rubber legs and that, I mean that's essentially it you know there's some some patterns you put on it with a marker things like that but that's a really effective fly for panfish and red eye bass and you can tie bigger ones and smaller ones and kind of you know play with the sizes a little bit but that that's a really effective fly as well I have a lot of those and I do fish those sometimes because they're lighter if I'm throwing a really small uh you know two or three weight rod sometimes I can get a little bit more distance Throwing a, a very light foam fly as opposed to a heavier cork fly. So, you know, I, I think that's good. I mean, just any kind of buggy imitation works really well, uh, whether it's a popper or a grasshopper imitation or whatever. You know, I don't think that, that fly anglers should be, this isn't something where you're necessarily just trying to match the hatch. You know, you're just trying to get something that creates a disturbance on the water that resembles something that they would eat normally and letting nature take its course. It's, it's funny that you talk about the one bug. So we actually had Wade Blevins on an episode of mm -hmm. the Freshwater Fishing Report a while back, and I enjoyed talking with him. I, I really enjoyed his story about uh, when he won 
and got disqualified from a bass tournament fishing a deer hair poppers back in the day. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's he seems like a cool guy. And uh I have I have looked, I've got it saved in my cart. I've got some of the supplies uh to tie the one bug because they are uh they're a little bit cheaper uh to make those one bugs than it is to throw a boogle bug. Um as far, <laughs> yeah. as, far as as far as the boogle bug, and I and I don't mean anything by that. I, I understand I have premium fishing gear and I have cheaper fishing gear. It just just right. depends. Now, boogle bug, for the people who aren't familiar, they make three different models. Basically, they make a boogle popper, they make an amnesia bug, and they make a boogle bullet. Are you fishing the popper? Like, are you trying to make some commotion, or are you fishing a bullet, or do you just reach in your, your, your pouch and tie on whichever one your hand lands on? Do you have a preference? No, I, I only have the popper. I don't, I don't buy the bullet or the amnesia bugs at all. So I buy the popper. I prefer a size six or eight and that's the only two sizes i use and i only buy like i said yellow or chartreuse that's just kind of my confidence why there's the i think the profile of that larger popper is just easier for me to see i don't normally if i'm fishing you know a small mountain stream i do not pop it at all i cast it i let it sit and I mean, typically, as soon as the fly hits the water, you know, it's going to get just ravaged by a red eye bass if they're there. Um, there's there's not a whole lot of guessing game going on. Uh, and so if I don't get a, a hit immediately, I'll recast, try somewhere else. And so I dead drift it, um, no popping, because I think in that small water, sometimes the popping will actually spook the fish. I mean, I've, I've seen it happen. So I, I try to just dead drift. Now, if I'm fishing a big river or if I get to a, an area where there's a, a deeper pool in a small stream and dead drifting isn't producing anything, I'll do a couple of pops, kind of just, you know, get their attention. So hopefully if they're on the bottom, maybe they'll come up and investigate. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, I don't pop it. And so because I think dead drifting, and I think most people that specifically target red eye bass will tell you this, they catch more fish and bigger fish dead drifting than having some sort of aggressive, you know, popping or anything like that. If I fish a one bug or something like that, I, I just can't see the profile as well. But I can see a boogle bug floating. Right. And so sometimes it's more about me than what the fish want. And I think that's probably the case with, with boogle bug. But I, I think I think those are very honest words that a lot of times fish and tackle is more about the fishermen than it is about the fish. And, and what you're saying, it really it, that that aligns with what I found just in the couple of days that I did it. It seemed like you got hit. I found out real quick that I did want that boogle bug or that bets. I wanted my popper. I wanted my lure to hit the water hard and stay still. Mm-hmm. And it and it seemed like the harder it hit the water initially, it seemed like it would get better strikes. Like you said, you'd get really aggressive strikes. But a lot of times I could see fish coming up to inspect it. And it seemed like they mm-hmm. always either hit it or they would inspect it and hit it. But it seemed like if they were watching it, I played with popping it. And nine times out of 10, I, you're right. You watch the fish lose interest in that lure and go back into some deeper water or, or just decide, no, I don't like the looks of whatever that thing's doing. So, and it, and it's a really simple fishing technique and it was really fun. And with that mm-hmm. rod, you know, you don't have to mend or anything like that. You could pop it in a place that looked good. And if you didn't like that, you could pop it in different places. And, and that's what I was doing was just to cast and drift. And you can cover a lot of water that way. 
and it's easy. And I'm that way. I've always been, uh, you know, the type bass fisherman. I like to fish brother-in-law baits, you know, spinner baits, crank baits, you right. know, something that does does the work for you. You know, that gets to me a little tedious if you have to sit there and you know bounce a jig just right for several hours and and play with it. And I know, right. I know fishermen who are really good at that, and they can sit there and after 20 minutes they can tell you the type of retrieve that the bass want that day. And and I envy them. And uh, but I entertain no delusions that I will one day have that skill. I just don't have it in me. I like I like to cast her out, but it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. Do you? When you do fish subsurface lures, so I did catch a few on some Kabaris, which is a uh, kind of a 10 car specialty fly. It's just a real simple reverse hackled uh, fly. Mm-hmm. And and I did find that fishing those below the surface of the water just with a little gentle pulse, I got I got a few bites that way in a couple places where I wasn't able to make a topwater bite work. I know you said that they are opportunistic feeders. They eat crawfish. So are you... Do, do you have, do you keep a subsurface lure or two with you just in case, you know, for whatever reason, the top water bite slow that day? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, sometimes there's some misconceptions about my, my love for top water. So it's always going to be my first go-to, but I'm not, you know, too prideful to, if the fish aren't eating it, to try something new. And so there's, there's a lot of times where I've, just not had the action that I would expect based on previous experience with a popper where I say, okay, well, maybe they're just not looking up today. You know, maybe there's, maybe there's an abundance of something under the surface that I can't see. And that's what they're keying on. And so, you know, I'm not going to fight it. I'm going to just try to match the hatch the best I can if, if, if that's what they're wanting. So I always have a variety of subsurface things. So crayfish imitations, uh, Brandon Bells is another fly tire in Alabama, North Alabama, a, a very, very good smallmouth angler, but also just an absolutely incredible fly tire. He ties what he calls a hatchling crayfish. And it's a, it's a really small, I mean, he can tie them on different size hooks, but you can get a size six or eight or 10 hatchling crayfish they have little dumbbell eyes and they ride hook point up and those are great for red eye fishing um so i will sometimes fish those i will fish uh helgramite imitations there's another guy john lore that lives in north alabama that ties some really beautiful articulated uh helgramite flies um i have more luck you know with bigger like shoal bass and things like that on those flies but but red eye will absolutely eat them but they're 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 just they're bigger they're bigger fly and then oh what else so there's i mean any kind of crawfish imitation one of the more popular patterns that that might be one of the best um subsurface patterns for red eye bass is what's called a a rubber-legged dragon and so it's essentially an imitation of a uh, damselfly nymph and it's just a real simple little little fly that either has dumbbell or bead chain eyes uh, to get it, you know, down a little bit in the water column. And it's a it's a you know food source that they're normally keyed in on eating. And so it's a it's a real you know, natural presentation. So that's the the three things that I use the most. But I think if you have some other uh, you know imitations and things like that, those. I mean, I don't, I don't think they're going to turn down anything, but I, I would say crayfish or, or damselfly imitation, 
or Helgramite, something like that would be one of the best to start with. And we're going to take a quick break. Y'all take a minute to check out some of the businesses that keep this show free for you. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by L&M Marine. L&M Marine has something for everyone from small hunting boats to pontoon boats to bigger bay boat and offshore hybrids. L&M Marine LLC prides itself on its customer service and knows how important it is to be taken care of and to have someone you can trust. They are locally owned and regularly support the surrounding community. L&M Marine provides superior customer service and has an entire team that consists of professional sales members, finance experts, service technicians, and a knowledgeable parts and accessories staff to fully support you. Go visit their friendly, reliable, and experienced staff today. L&M Marine is located six miles north of I-10 at 34600 Highway 59 in Stapleton, Alabama. You can also reach them by phone at 251-937-1380. Matt, you, you talk about your, your subsurface flies, and I just want to throw in before we move on, um, down here is something I've fished a lot with on the little small sandy uh, blackwater streams that we have is uh, Z-Man makes a TRD crawl. And it's kind of the same thing you're talking about when you can't get topwater bites or when you can't catch one on a beetle spin or something like that. A lot of times you can slow down and fish one of those. And I didn't fish it for red-eye bass, but I, I feel like on those rocky creeks, that little imitation crawl, uh, those Z-Man plastics are buoyant. So you weight them down. And you can kind of crawl him up the stream and he's got those pinchers up in like a defensive position like he would be if he was real and a red eye started looking at him. And uh, I was just going to throw that in there for any guys on conventional tackle. If you start off with a topwater crit copper or a beetle spin or something like that and you can't catch anything and you want to slow down and work those deeper pools, I think that's a good bait. It doesn't really get hung and they're pretty cost effective. So as, as far as... You know, that that's the gear that you fish with, lightweight fly gear, ultralight tackle. I know largemouth bass are pretty ubiquitous in the southeast. So are crappie, bluegill, the common freshwater sport fish. You can find those anywhere. Red-eye bass, and that's actually seven different species that we're just referring to as one thing for convenience sake. So each one is endemic to its own river system, right? The Coosa bass, Tallapoosa bass, Cahaba bass. Black Warrior Bass, and then what else do you have? The Altamaha and the Bartrams and the Chattahoochee. So they're they're found, you know, automatically, uh, just knowing that they're in those river drainages, that narrows down where you can find them. But then they also have particular habitat needs that means that they can be a little bit harder to find without getting into giving away spots. Just in general, where do you find them? What do you look for if, if you're somewhere in that region? I know we talked in the last podcast about them being kind of above the fall line in kind of the, the Piedmont region in most of Alabama and some of the other different geological areas um, where it's more rocky. What are you looking for when, when you first started? I know that you've had years now and you just have your fishing holes that you go to, but I think if I remember correctly, you kind of started off with an interest in brook trout and then moved on to red-eye bass. So I know you had a period of time where you were trying to locate these spots. What do you look for if if you're hunting for a red-eye bass spot? Yeah, and I mean, I still do seek out water because, you know, some of the water that, that I fished a lot has been discovered by other people. And, you know, I'm I'm constantly trying to stay one step ahead of the next guy and finding places that are, you know, remote or untouched. So I still do this. So 
like we mentioned before, I mean, you really should just look at a map of Alabama and see where each of these river systems are and then where the fall line is and kind of how those, you know, how those uh, rivers, river systems relate to the fall line. And then once you're, you're certain that you're kind of in the upper reaches of those river systems, you know, Google Maps, e-scouting, that kind of stuff, Onyx, where you can just look at a creek or river and look and see, uh, you know, you're looking for presence of big, large bedrock boulders. Red-eye bass tend to be found uh, more around rocky substrate than, you know, like large woody debris and stuff like that. You're going to you're gonna see more largemouth and Alabama bass around that kind of stuff. Uh, but just strictly large bedrock, shoal complexes, you know, cobblestone bottoms, kind of uh, underwater submerged, like rocky ledges and things like that. Those are all, you know, prime red-eye bass habitat. And most of that you can see Google Maps or Onyx. I mean, you can look and you can see a sh- what a shoal complex looks like in, in the water. And you can see what large bedrock boulders look like. And so if you just look at in those stream systems for those features, you can identify that. And then you're just trying to find, you know, access points. So how can I launch a kayak and get through all this black water to get up to that shoal area, you know, and, or how can I float down to that area or can I, can I wade? You know, those are all things. And sometimes, you, you know, you can only get so far looking at a map. You just got to, you got to spend the time and the money and the gas to, to drive and look for yourself and see what it looks like. And see if it's something that you you could actually feasibly do, and it might be best to identify you know three or four spots in the same general area. So when you do finally do that that in person visit, you know you're not spending all that time and effort to get just to one location. You got several to kind of check out and pick the best one, or you know just pick one to start with. And there's just no substitute for getting out there and and trying it out. Um, getting in the creek and seeing what you catch. I mean, that's ultimately, you know, what you're going to have to do. For sure. I, I think for me, but because I really, I've said this multiple times, I cannot overstate just how much fun I had getting up there. And part of it is my wife and I, ever since we got married, we like riding around and exploring. And we've, we've spent a lot of honeymoons, anniversaries, riding up around that part of the state and, you know, seeing all the old churches, the old barbecue joints, the old hole in the wall places, old antique stores. And it's a great way to see a chunk of Alabama, you know, that's not necessarily right there on that I-65 corridor with all the tourist traffic. You kind of see some of the old history and culture of, of the deep South and you run into some really scenic places and to, to kind of elaborate on your point. So I'm, I'm a map scouter from way back. I'm, my roots are in like public land deer hunting. So I'm, I'm a map addict. Um, I've, I've been, I've wasted a lot of hours glued to, to Google earth and other resources. And once I kind of had a feel for it, I, I kind of started picking apart areas and you can see, like you said, you can see the boulders on a topo map. You can see where there's cliffs and stuff like that. You can see where a, a body of water runs through. It kind of has its own Canyon carved out as opposed to being in a river bottom so you can identify those rocky streams, but there's so much of it. You're not, not trying to give away spots, but like I, I assume it's safe to talk about, you know, just like in broad strokes, you have Talladega National Forest and Bankhead National Forest. You have, you know, thousands mm-hmm. of acres. 
that that have a lot of blue lines where you look at it and you can see them, but you can't tell anything about the nature of that creek really from an aerial photograph because of the canopy. And you can tell looking right. at it, well, I would just have to go find a trail and, you know, burn five miles in backcountry. Or, or, you know, even even if there's something where the access looks a, a little easier, sometimes you really don't know till you drive there. I went to one place and the only reason I stopped there was because it was on the way to another place. I'm like, well, I'm at least going to pull over at the bridge and have a look at it. And once right. you were looking at it, you could tell you're like, yeah, it's it's rocky. But there was so much canopy yeah. you couldn't tell. You'd have assumed it was just like any other, you know, kind of stuff we're more used to seeing down here because there's a bunch of the fall line where. Or, or there's regions in the fall line where you have that bedrock and you have like you think that rocky mountain creek vibe. And then there are some places where I was in creek bottoms and it's like, man, this has got, you know, Tupelo and Cypress. This looks like the stuff back home on the Gulf Coast. So you really do have to right. lay eyes on it. And then at the end of the day, you got to put a lure in it, you know, just just like anywhere else. Yeah. And that that's what I was going to say, because just, you know, now I've got the experience i guess where i can look back and all the different rivers and streams i've fished across alabama specifically above the fall line in some of these drainages where red-eye bass occur and you know there's streams that look perfect for red-eye bass and you're primarily going to catch alabama bass and so that's where you know from from looking online you can only get so far it might look good or it may be something you can't see and you got to go in person you look at it it looks good but once you get in it and fish you're, you're just catching all alabama bass and i mean that's common um because there's a lot i mean alabama bass prior to you know the impoundments they were a native river fish i mean they're also a native river fish but if you if you keep going upstream or if you're catching alabama bass just look for access further upstream and try another section you know, and keep going up until, you know, maybe you stumble into red-eye bass eventually. And then at a certain point, you know, the more you go up, the more it's going to be just red-eye bass. It, and that's just how a lot of these, these river systems are. Sure. So another thing, like, is, as far as an indicator, something I started to pick up on, and I'm not confident enough to, to really say that this is a pattern, but what I noticed, you know, if you're fly fishing on a small creek, you're going to catch panfish and... I found in a lot of areas, the panfish that I was catching were going to be bluegill and some red-eared sunfish. And in those locations, I did not catch red-eye bass. And then I, as you would get into regions where the fish that were hitting your fly were more green sunfish, it seemed like that that was a almost like an indicator species. It's like, okay, well, I'm catching all my sunfish or green sunfish or the occasional red breast. And I got to the point where I was kind of treating it like, well, that's probably a good sign. Like they just seem like those two species go together. Is that something that you've noticed or am I making a pattern where one doesn't necessarily exist? <laughs> I, I think maybe the latter. So in my experience, the, the majority of the panfish that you encounter on red eye streams are red-breasted sunfish and long ear mm -hmm. sunfish. Now you... I mean, green sunfish are about as ubiquitous as it gets. So, I mean, they, you know, if, if there's a mud puddle that lasts for more than a couple of weeks, it's like all of a sudden a green sunfish appears in it. Um, it. It's just a fish that despite our best efforts where we don't want them, they they appear. Right. 
So green sunfish are pretty ubiquitous. I don't know that I could that you could use them as a as an indicator for presence of another species just because they're so so widespread. But certainly long ear sunfish and red breasted sunfish inhabit, you know, red breasted sunfish, unlike a lot of other panfish, have a an affinity for current. And mm-hmm. so they're oftentimes going to be in the same type water that you'll find red eye bass, long ear sunfish, you know, typically are they're in that type of water, but they're they're more, you know, on the the margins of the stream around a lot of the, you know, vegetation and, you know, slower water. So those two species are what I catch predominantly as far as panfish and red eye bass waters. Bluegill some, but to a lesser extent, it's it's primarily red-breasted sunfish and long-ear sunfish where where I've fished, which is across you know Talapusa, Cahaba, and Black Warrior drainages. Those are sure. those are the the two panfish that I would say are most common. Well, I'm I'm mildly disappointed that that I wasn't onto something, <laughs> but I would I would rather know. I'm keenly aware that a lot of sportsmen. Uh, you get an idea in your head and it's hard to shake it. So I, I appreciate you for uh, enlightening me on that. And uh, it is interesting. We catch a lot of long-eared sunfish down here, or I do in some of the little yeah. creeks that I fish. And it was surprising to me. I don't know that I ever caught a long-eared sunfish or a dollar sunfish. I don't even know if that waterway has dollar sunfish, but I know long-ears are throughout the state. And they uh, they split them, didn't they? Didn't have, aren't long-ears undergoing kind of the same thing red eyes are undergoing? Yeah, and, and red breast. I mean, there's a bunch of different, you know, what we've, you know, with the advent of genetics and the power of genetics, you know, you can look a little deeper than we've ever looked before at differences between these different populations. And, you know, once you have enough genetic difference that's coupled with what we call morphological difference of, you know, difference in appearance, mm-hmm. you know, that's how, you know, things start to get split as different species and you know just as a brief side note there's in fisheries there's a there's two groups of people there's what we call lumpers and splitters and there's you know people that like to split things up into different species and people that like to keep things grouped together and there's a lot of back and forth of like oh you're a lumper or you're a splitter and I, I i just think that all that aside you know the reason that we we have things split up into species so that we can better manage them. So, you know, if you look at red-eye bass as a whole, well, there's populations of red-eye bass that are doing great. Calapusa, Coosa River system. There's populations of red-eye bass that aren't doing so great. Cahaba, Black Warrior River system. If you were to collectively manage red-eye bass, you know, which one do you manage for? The ones that are doing good or the ones that are doing bad? Because the other one might suffer, you know, if you pick a side. So these species designations can actually be quite helpful. It's not easier because it, it places a bigger burden on the, the managers of those resources. But, you know, it helps you, you know, manage for that resource to exist into perpetuity as opposed to, you know, potentially losing the species forever. And, and such as with the black warrior red eye bass or what we call warrior bass, um, they don't exist anywhere else in the world except here in alabama in the black warrior river system and so if we lose those those fish or that species i mean there's not another population to go get and put there that that's it so i think it, you know it's, it's important that we investigate these different species 
and population differences that might lead to species, whether it's a red-breasted sunfish or whatever. So I, I think that's just an important side note that I wanted to mention because um, some people are like, why are we splitting all these things up? And I mean, it is frustrating, but it's also it's also helped uh, as far as conservation goes. I, I would agree with you. And I, I'm sure that there are some people out there who are thinking, you know, well, at the end of the day, you know, who who cares? You know, that's the smallest bass. And you say that there's seven different <laughs> right. species of them. So if the warrior, I can, I can hear the argument like, well, man, if we run out of warrior bass, I got a real easy solution for you. Just pop over to the Coosa River and grab some of them and put them <laughs> back if you're so worried about it. But uh, I think, right. uh, are you familiar with uh, Paul Johnson over on the Cuyahoga yeah. River? Mm-hmm. The, mu- the, I the was, muscles. Yeah, yeah, the muscle man. Yeah, I was reading a, an article with him in it a while back, and he had a really good quote in there. And it, and he said, every time you lose a species, you're burning a library book. You know, like you you have that genetic right. code, and it came to be the way it is for a reason in response to its environment. And there's a lot of useful information in that genetic code, and we're mm-hmm. just starting to kind of understand that. It's like how in chemistry, when we first started pharmaceuticals, like the compounds that we were making for the most part we were duplicating naturally occurring chemicals that turned out to have huge use to humanity you know um, right and, and we're getting the same way as we've we've kind of decoded the human genome and moved on to other species you know where we're starting to find out really interesting things in genetics that, that are useful and I'm, I'm sure that you're more familiar than that more familiar with that than I am, given your education and your professional background. Um, but just for the average layperson out there, genetic diversity is important, and it and understanding it and protecting it has far-reaching implications in areas that you do care about. You know, it's not not necessarily just about the the beauty and the wonder of that particular organism and how it fits in the ecosystem. There is a very real, you know, kind of concrete, almost selfish reason to protect that resource absolutely yeah so, well that that and that's my that's my soapbox and i'll get off of it but um, <laughs> we could get on that soapbox probably both of us for a while yeah i i think uh, it's really exciting to me and i'm very much a lay person I, I try to stay fairly scientifically literate and i enjoy reading about stuff like that but i, I think it's really wonderful like the 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 genome mapping project that we completed not that long ago and now they're looking at mapping out the human brain they're looking at doing the same thing and they're estimating that they'll they'll get that done within our lifetime which is crazy to think about what that's going to look like and the things that we're going to learn along the way doing that but so getting getting back to the what the podcast is about going kind of back to earth towards fishing we've we've talked about a lot i wanted to circle back to kind of two points we covered earlier and then the first one was we were talking about what is a red eye and what isn't a red eye and how most bass can have red eyes. So, and I, and I apologize. I pestered you a good bit the first couple of fish that I caught because they were new to me and I wanted to make sure I caught the right thing before I drove two hours away from that spot and had to come back. What are the, mm-hmm. the good field marks to look for? If somebody's fishing in an area that has red eye bass, and they catch something, what do you look for to ascertain if you've caught a red eye? The two most diagnostic markers that you can use are, number one, they have this little crescent on the back half of the upper eye that can range in color from, you know, silvery chrome to blue. And, you 
know, that's, that's a, a trait unique to red-eye bass only. And all red-eye bass have that. doesn't matter if we're talking about the, the Barfins bass in the Savannah River or the Coosa bass in the Coosa River system. You know, all the red-eye bass species have that trait. In addition to that, most all of them have white edges on the upper and lower margins of the caudal fin or the tail fin. It's more pronounced in some than others. Uh, like the Cahaba River system, they, you know, it's really almost at the upper and lower tip of the, the margin of the caudal fin, whereas the Coosa and Tallapoosa, almost that entire upper margin and lower margin is white. Some that it's a little bit more difficult to see, like the Chattahoochee bass, because they have such a red coloration. Sometimes the white just doesn't stand out as much, but it, it is still there. So there's white edges on the upper and lower tail fin margins and the crescent on the back half of the upper eye are the two most reliable field markers for, for red eye bass. I tell people just completely ignore the eye color. Like don't even don't even bring that into consideration because it's really not something that's going to tell you anything. Yeah, and I, and I can attest to that because I did catch what I at least believe were right eye bass, they had that, like you were talking about, almost like the eyeliner mascara marking mm-hmm. behind their eye, and they had white fa- white, white fin edges, um, but their eyes weren't really red. And I saw everything from eyes that were almost pink, um, like very bright red, to some that were brownish. You know, they might have had a tenor red to them, but there was definitely some variation there. And uh, there was, I could see the variation in the ones I was catching in the Black Warrior versus the Cahaba versus Coosa and Tallapoosa, I couldn't really differentiate much between them, but definitely the ones at the Coosa seemed to have a, a overall greener coloration is what I observed. And, mm-hmm. and then the ones in the Black Warrior had very pronounced white and they seemed lighter in color. And and I know a lot of that, there's so many things that can influence fish color. Yeah. Cause I mean, we've, so there's, there's paper, you know, papers that have been written looking at differences between these species of red-eye bass. And, you know, some of them use like the number of vertical blotches along the midline mm-hmm. to differentiate species. And, and there are some species-specific differences there, but also there's a lot of overlap. So, say, Tallapoosa bass have 11 to 13 vertical blotches along the midline, but something else has, you know, 8 to 11 you know, so there's right. there's some overlap. Right. It, it isn't necessarily diagnostic. I can look at a red eye bass and almost tell you whether it's you know a black warrior, Cahaba, Kusa, Talapusa, just because I've seen so many of them. I will admit that, like you mentioned, the Kusa and Talapusa are two that are hard to tell depending on the picture. If I look at them in person, I can tell. But you know, there's some intra intraspecific variation with all these. So a Coosa bass from this stream doesn't look exactly like a Coosa bass from, you know, this other Coosa stream, because just like you and I don't look exactly alike, there's there's some subtle differences sometimes. And if that's not perfectly captured with a photo or multiple photos, and, I, you know, people send it to me for, you know, what what is this? I, well, do you have any more photos? Because Sometimes I, there's there's things I need to see. I need to see the the shape of the tail fin. Mm-hmm. I need to see you know the colors of the fins. And if the sunlight isn't quite right, or 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 that's obstructed by a hand, 
you know, it's hard for me to see those defining characteristics. But I think it's um, important to note that one of the big differences between the Kusa and the Cahaba that you can go by is Kusa bass typically have a little bit more red coloration in their fins. So they'll kind of the posterior edge of the, the tail fin and also the soft dorsal and anal fin, you'll, you can see kind of a little bit of red, uh, kind of a brick red coloration. And that's not present in any other red-eye bass species. And then you've got the black warrior, they have almost kind of an orange coloration in those same same areas. So the, the uh, tail fin, soft dorsal and anal fin will have a little touch of orange uh, to even you know, yellow sometimes. And that's not present in any other red-eye bass species of the Mobile Basin. So those two can be differentiated pretty easily. The Talapusa just, you know, typically has a little bit more blue coloration uh, in them. And they do have more vertical blotches along their midline than any other red-eye bass species. So, I mean, there's there's things that you can kind of hone into if you want to look. But, I mean, I mean, realistically, the easiest way is if you, if you caught it in the Talapusa River system, or, or a stream that flows ultimately to the Talapusa, it's a Talapusa bass. It's, um, it's interesting you say all that because I've been, as you've been talking, I've been going back through my camera roll and looking at the different ones that I caught in different places. And I'm, I'm looking at a picture where I'm holding a Kusa bass. And, and as you say those things, I can look and be like, yeah, actually that makes sense. Like I'm looking this one and I'm holding in my hand. You can see, uh, now he's got a lot of kind of that orangish color to his fins. And then I can scroll over to a Talapusa bass and be like, okay, yeah, that's definitely not present on that one. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. that's part of the fun to me too, that I discovered early on in life is uh, I get into bird watching and you learn to look in a different way. The same thing with like identifying plants or mushrooms, you know, like when I got, I got lucky enough to, to meet with one of the, um, members of the uh, Alabama Mushroom Society and go on a, a little field trip with her. And all of a sudden in an afternoon, your world changes, you know, like you live your whole life in the right. woods and you're like, oh, there's mushrooms. And and then in one day, like you can never unsee it. You're like, oh, those are just, you know, shelf polypores, but that's, that's an oyster mushroom, you know? And, right. and used to, it was all just mushrooms. Now you're looking, you're like, well, those are Amanitas and those are Boletes and Hey, those are chanterelles. <laughs> you know, like your world yeah. gets bigger and you start looking and, you know, you can have a lot of fun fishing and it's just like, well, what'd you go fishing for? Oh, I caught bass and well, that's fun. But then you can also go and say, well, I caught, you know, Coosa bass and I caught Alabama bass and I caught, you know, a largemouth bass and, or like with lepomids, yeah, you know, I mean, people say, oh, that's a funny looking bluegill. And you're like, dude, got news for you. That ain't a bluegill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, and, and one caveat to all this that, you know, because people, after I give those, those distinguishing characteristics, it's important to note that we do know that a lot of these fish are hybridizing with native Alabama bass. And so what happens when a red-eye bass mates with an Alabama bass is you get a hybrid too they actually can reproduce and produce fertile offspring. So what you'll be left with in those, in those offspring between the, the two different species is a fish that has intermediate features of both. And so you may catch what appears to be an Alabama bass that has the eye crescent and the white edges on the fins. And you're like, what the heck is this thing? 
And that, like I said, that's more prominent in the Kusa, I mean, sorry, the uh, Cahaba and Black Warrior River systems, but it does happen in all four in Alabama. And so, you know, that's a caveat. So people oftentimes they catch a fish that's larger than 11 inches, you know, my radar is going off thinking, yeah, I don't know if that's a pure red eye because again, they just don't get that big. I mean, we've done, you know, as part of my study, we've, we've sampled literally thousands of fish from all these different river systems, recorded lengths on all of them, ran genetics on all of them. And I think over th- out of thousands of fish, we have maybe three that were over 12 inches that were actually pure red-eye bass. It's just not very common. And yeah. so when people catch fish that are larger than that, generally there's going to be some sort of hybridization there with Alabama bass because they routinely get much bigger. You know, a, a 12-inch Alabama bass is probably you know, two, three years old, whereas a, if that's a red-eye, it's probably 10, you know. So it's, it's an important consideration to be aware of when you're looking at these these distinguishing characteristics on a fish. But, you know, then it's like 14 inches and you're like, man, I've caught the world record red eye. It's like, <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe. I mean, we can't say never, but the chances are it's, it's a hybrid between uh, red eye bass and Alabama bass. It's crazy for me to think so as a whitetail hunter. And, you know, you think about a really big buck and he'll be four and a half, five and a half years old. Like, like five and a half is by a lot of people considered to be kind of the peak after five, six, you kind of start to have that, that steady decline. So like you think about how many big old deer people talk about smart, wise, old swamp bucks and stuff like that. And you think, well, he may only be four and a half, five and a half years old. And it's crazy to me. You catch that little fish and you look at it and you're like this fish has been around for longer than that big buck I shot last year. It's like, it's like when I found yeah. out that squirrels can live to be, uh, you know, I started finding out that you were shooting, I was shooting squirrels that could be 12 years old. And it's like, man, yeah. like that's, that's a lot of time running around in the treetops or in the case of bass, that's a lot of time dodging herons and otters. And that's, that's just a Lumbers. lot of bugs he's eating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dodging, <laughs> dodging cannonballs and, uh, you know, Budweiser yeah, cans that's and, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hungry rednecks, man. Like that's yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there's a lot of, it, it kind of gives you a little bit more perspective on the treasure that you're you're holding in your hand. It's not only is it beautiful and not only is it in, you know, this just postcard type wild setting, but like this fish right here has been in this stream, you know, probably in this general area of the stream for, you know, eight nine ten years like it's just a survivor you know so i think that sets up a a segue really well about kind of the sense of wonder that i think we share when we hold these fish and look at them and we've had several conversations about this and and i feel the same way as a hunter whether it's deer ducks turkey whatever you have on the one hand the desire to keep it to yourself you know, you don't, you don't want to mess up a good thing for yourself if you got a piece of property or in your case, a stream that's productive for you. But on the flip side, you know, you know, just, just like we talked about earlier, one of the, you know, features of living in a democracy is, you know, the more people care about something, the more attention it gets. 
you know, that's just kind of how the system works, you know, um, you know, bear mm -hmm. and wolves and white-tailed deer, you know, the cute cuddly animals get a little bit of special treatment compared to the not so cute and cuddly ones. And, you know, right. the fish that taste good or are fun to fight, they get a little bit more attention. They get more resources thrown their way. So you kind of have a balance of, well, I want to share this. And and not just from that point of view, like when you, that's just human nature. If there's something that you're interested in, you want to talk about that to other people. It feels good to share that with people. So talking about that sense of wonder and, and how special the ecosystem is and wanting to share it with people, but kind of also I want to talk about what's the right way and, and i'm not, not coming at this from a high horse position because i think in alabama there's a there's a misconception sometimes about conservation and i've heard jokes made at fly fishermen's expense you know mm -hmm. about how they you know they catch fish and then they release them and i, I have friends who they're like ah, i like to show them guys pictures of a pan full of fish you know mm -hmm. but you know obviously this isn't really a fish there's not much you know, value in it, I don't think, as, as a eaten fish. There's value in it as a recreational fish. But the these ecosystems, they are not that common to start with. And they've been subject to a lot of urbanization between, you know, Atlanta, Birmingham, Huntsville, Tuscaloosa, even like just as we've had that urban sprawl. And and I saw it. Some of the places that I went to were very pristine. And you could at least pretend that you were out in the middle of nowhere. And then there were some places where you're fishing and people are walking by you and there's muddy cattle trail paths up and down the river. There's trash, there's Rapalas caught in the trees. And I, and I know you, you're not that way. Just put it that way. So what would you tell people? Like, how do you go about enjoying that resource in a responsible way? What are some of the things that you make sure not to do? And some of the things that you specifically make sure that you do do when you're fishing? Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, a lot of it's common sense or, or what you would think is common sense. Um, if you, if you're drinking a beer next to the water or if you're eating a sandwich or, you know, whatever, pick up your trash, you know, don't leave your trash on the stream side. Now, is it more convenient to just throw it down and keep going? Probably. But how much extra effort does it take to keep that place clean, but just keep a bag with you and put it back in your bag, you know, and put it I, in your pocket or, or, or your backpack? I, I put it this um, way. It, you brought it with you and it was full and it weighed more. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it, it didn't bother you to hike it, it in there. Out. Why can't you pack it back out? Right. And, and and a lot of these places that I fish for red eye bass, at least at, at some of the access points, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of trash. And it's all yeah. stuff that, because these places are in the middle of nowhere, I mean, it's stuff people brought in and were just too lazy to take back out. So, I, I mean, just bare minimum, pack your own trash out. Pack someone else's trash out. You know, I mean, there's a lot of places that I myself and and other anglers that I know when they go fishing, when they leave, they're they're coming back with a bag full of trash that they've picked up that was somebody else's. And and you got to get over this idea that I didn't put it there, so it's my responsibility. I mean, it's all of our responsibility to keep these places clean and 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 taken care of. So that's bare minimum. Just just don't throw your trash down out there. The other is to, we've talked about, you know, be mindful of 
these populations and the pressure that you're putting on them. I mean, it's, you know, coming from, from me, what I've always tried to do with red eye bass, at least awareness is to provide a healthy dose of education along with that awareness so that the anglers that you're creating and encouraging, you're also, you know, informing and empowering with knowledge about, about the species that they're pursuing. So you know it takes them a long time to get to be 11 inches. Many, many will never reach that. So what's the point of, of keeping a stringer full of red-eye bass when you could easily keep a stringer full of, you know, Alabama bass or, or something that's a lot more abundant? Um, sure. Multiple panfish species. You know, I, I'm not someone that's going to, I mean, I, I'm not a, averse to blood sports. I mean, I'm a hunter. I eat fish. I, I kill turkeys. I kill deer. I kill ducks. I kill you know fish and eat them. But there's there's other species, I guess, that that you could do that with. So I, I you know, but I, we don't really know what the populations of red eye bass are like. So we know it takes them a long time to grow. We we don't know how many of them there are. I mean, if if they do get overcrowded, you know, that could potentially be a, a bad thing too. So I'm not going to say that we should never harvest red-eye bass. I just think we should be mindful of, of the size and number that we're harvesting. So that's that's the other thing. The other thing is just to get, you know, be active in the waters that you fish. If you fish in the Coosa River system, you know, donate to Coosa Riverkeeper and, and get involved with helping them out as far as volunteering to take water samples or, you know, other things that they, they need help doing. Same way with Cabo Riverkeeper, Black Warrior. So there's a lot of others that, um, and benefit from that that help. In addition to that, I'm trying to think of some others. Uh, Native Fish Coalition is a national nonprofit dedicated to, you know, preserving and conserving native fish in their native habitat. You know, donate money to organizations like that. Don't move fish around. If if a fish, if you take a fish from the Coosa River system, don't release it into the Black Warrior River system. You know, some there's been a lot of fish that have been moved around in Alabama where they don't belong because of anglers. Just, you know, I, I think be you know, not having any ill intentions, but just not thinking about it. You know, uh, there's, there's bass here, there's bass there. What does it matter if I move them around? And, you know, there can be some pretty catastrophic um, effects from that kind of stuff. So just, just don't move fish around. Don't take fish. If you don't plan to, to keep the fish yourself. So I think those are some of the, the key things, you know, I would really advocate for the pressure part of it, though, because, you know, in creating this desire to catch red-eye bass, which is, is something that, that I, I personally have spent a lot of time doing, so I'm, I'm encouraging people to do it. And people see these photos on Instagram, and they want to go catch it. And it's almost like the desire to catch it and get your, your Instagram photo outweighs you know, your, your care, concern for the resource. And it's a lot of streams that get a lot of foot traffic now. And so, you know, you don't have to fish the same exact stream, you know, every single week or every other day. You know, a lot of the streams I fish, and granted, I have probably a lot more uh, options than most other people just because I've, I've done this for a lot longer. I mean, some streams I don't fish at all, you know, in a year, maybe only every other year. And then some, you know, I fish maybe every few months. Some I, I probably could fish every other week or something like that. You know, it's just, just 
if it's a small stream, don't beat it to death and, and don't just blast the location out uh, on your YouTube video or, or however else you're, you're documenting where you were. Be careful of what you post, locations and things like that, just because there's a lot of people out there that might not have the same outlook on the resources you do. And they're, they're fine with exploiting the resource. And, you know, you're basically giving them a blueprint of where to go and how to do it without the barrier of them having to figure it out on their own, uh, which is part of the fun, really, with this. A lot of it's just figuring out where they are. So I think that's important to keep in mind. I agree with what you're saying, and I'm, I'm, it has become, in the past few years, more important to me. And I'm, I'm happy to say that I have. I, I am a member of our local waterkeeper, Mobile Bay Keepers, and I've, I've done some stuff with them. I actually write for uh, one of the publications that they put out. I've been to, you know, kind of town hall meetings to speak out against some of the things I think that the local municipalities and businesses have done that I don't think are great for the waterway. And I did actually join uh, here just within the past week. I joined Native Fish Coalition because I, I think I agree with what their mission is. It's something I'll kind of go into that you didn't really cover that has been interesting to me. So I grew up, I tell people, I've, I've tried to find a way to explain this. So I consider myself in some ways a new fisherman. I've been fishing my whole life, but it's like this. Everybody that's listening to this podcast probably drinks coffee and, and it drinks a beer, you know, and you might've drank a beer mm-hmm. every weekend since you turned 21. So that's a lot of beer. You might know quite a lot about beer. You've probably drank a cup of coffee every day since, you know, for me, since I was in high school, I've, I've drank a pot of coffee every day, um, some days more, mm-hmm. but I'm not what I would consider a coffee enthusiast, if that makes sense. And, and down here on the Gulf coast, I fished, but I was not really a fisherman. Like I, I, I knew a good bit about fishing just cause you kind of pick it up by osmosis and heck you go every week, you know, but I was more right. of a deer hunter, but here recently I've gotten into it more and started learning more about it. And something that some of you guys may laugh at me, Matt, you'll probably laugh at me about this, but it has not been until the past year that I've really started reading up on catch and release practices like I kind of had in my head most of the people I grew up with my family and my older friends the people who mentored me you know they would catch and release Um, they would catch and keep you know and they would catch and release but I have found that there's a big difference between one person's catch and release and another's Um, I've seen a lot of you know gut hooked fish where yeah you technically put him back into water but he didn't make it um or somebody yeah. take a picture you know you think about holding that fish up out the water for four or five minutes and passing them around and taking pictures well hold your breath for five minutes and tell me how you feel or or right. you know take that fish when it's 100 degrees outside for you and you've done run that fish out and you've played him turned him back loose in that 90 degree water all kind of stuff you know the way i've seen people handle them or like now i've i've developed a new trigger i guess is what they call it now but I've, i'll see people at my local pond and they'll catch a big bluegill and they'll take him off the hook and they just underhand toss him <laughs> and you watch him <laughs> somersault and you hear him hit that water and you're just like man i don't know if that counts as catching or release you know like it's gonna take him a minute to shrug <laughs> he, he can't that can't be nice like if i belly flopped on that water that that kind of hurt <laughs> like, yeah 
and something I've got into as well is uh, barbless hooks. And, and if you'd have told me five mm-hmm. years ago, hey, you should fish with barbless hooks, I'd have been like, man, why would you do that? You're going to lose fish. And you really don't, has been my experience. I finally, I ended up, bought some that were barbless, didn't mean to, said, well, I've done something to money and I'm going to fish with them. And they are remarkably easier to get out of a fish. They're also remarkably easier to get out of your shirt <laughs> or, or your pants yeah. leg or your net, or they're just in general, like just quality uh-huh. of life improvement across the board. And, you know, with a fly, at least like uh, on a crankbait, yeah, not doing barbless hooks on a crankbait because I, you know, they can throw that there's enough weight, but with a fly, there's not enough weight. They can't get the leverage to throw it. I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel like I have lost any fish at all, but I do feel like it has made it easier to get that hook out of that fish's mouth, especially if they're hooked a little deeper than is ideal and get them back in the water with a minimum amount of stress. And then, like you said, I, I have. I have kind of found out the hard way over the years when I was a kid, I had a pond that I really liked to fish and it was catch and release, but my practices weren't the best. And what I found was that just over the course of the summer, the fishing got worse. And it was because, you know, I was fishing it every day for two hours in the evening and just kind of takes its toll on the fishery. And so now I have a little pond near my house and, and man, I'll put a cap. I'll say, look, I'm going to go catch five fish. Like five fish is enough to be fun. And then, you know, mm-hmm. may, maybe they don't all need a lip piercing at the same time. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, well, uh, and I, I, you know, there's some, I mean, what you're saying is a very, very important point that I completely forgot about. It's, it's proper. I mean, just because you're, you're releasing the fish doesn't mean that there's no harm done. There's a lot of delayed mortality that happens in fish populations due to, to angling. And like you mentioned, there's a lot of studies on bass specifically where you, you know, the, you know, holding the fish by the lower lip and then kind of holding it up where it's, it's basically all of its weight is being on that jaw. Yeah. Putting them at that 45. Yeah. And so there's some sprains and things that happen there. The fish doesn't feed properly and, you know, may slowly die um, and not recover from and that's, that's been studied and, and, and shown with data. And, you know, a lot of the catch and release stuff and, and tactics you read are, are very applicable to trout because that's what most fly fishermen pursue. There's not a whole lot about like, how do I properly handle a bass? You know, you don't have, they're not as dainty as trout. You don't have to be as mindful. Is it a good practice? Yeah. I mean, certainly whatever's good for a trout can be good for a bass, but yeah, just like you mentioned, keep them in the water um, as much as possible, you know, use wet hands when you're handling them. Try to take pictures of the fish, you know, in the water, if at all possible, not having to, to do the grip and grin. Um, you know, those are all things that are really, I think, important as far as being a responsible, you know, user of that resource. But, uh, you know, river and pond systems are totally different. I, I think that for one person, it would be extremely hard to ever fish out a pond. Now, if there's a lot of people fishing the pond, keeping fish, you know, certainly maybe you could have an effect, but, you know, those are, those are not natural systems um, and they have to have, you know, a certain amount of pounds of fish taken out of them to, to stay a good, vibrant fishery. But rivers are different. You know, those are natural systems and they're not as productive. You know, fish have to eke out a living a little bit harder in a river or stream as opposed to a, a pond or a lake. And, 
you know, it just, everything's more difficult. So keeping a lot of fish consistently from the rivers, especially, you know, slow growing things like red eye bass, just, it could have, you know, a lot of unintended consequences. I think too, something that that's important to keep in mind when it comes to, like you said, a wild fishery in a river or creek, we're very used to sportsmen are used to particularly hunters we're used to animals who we kind of are the natural predator like like deer in alabama need hunter activity at this point because we've done away with the lion's share of their natural predators and and the environment their habitat has expanded because they're kind of a creature of the edge so urbanization has really worked out well for whitetail deer you know farmland and subdivisions that sort of thing it works out well for them and it's very different with fish you know we killed all the wolves and mountain lions but we did not kill all the otters and raccoons and herons and ospreys and bigger fish right so the the human predation is is compounded you also have natural predation which is good and natural it's just something that maybe people aren't used to thinking about you know they're like oh well i'm just all that i'm doing is this it's like well right but there's also the other anglers and the other natural predators that deer don't necessarily face or something like uh even turkeys you know like like most species we have eliminated a lot of the natural predators and that's not the case in these waterways and then you know habitat destruction is a thing bass are going to be just fine would be my guess as far as long-term because bass, they can do great in the municipal park duck pond, you know, um, yeah. you can, you can yeah, dig large, a hole, put water in it. Mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Large yeah. mouth will do just fine, but a red eye, he's, he can't do that. Like, and it's very hard right. for us. We are not at the point and probably never will be where we can say, okay, well, let's make a mountain stream here. You know, um, right. yeah. that's, yeah. that's, orders of magnitude harder to do so we're going to take a quick break y'all take a minute to check out some of the businesses that keep this show free for you this week's episode of the alabama freshwater fishing report has been brought to you by southeastern pond management since 1989 southeastern pond management has been a leader in pond and lake management services if you own a pond or lake anywhere in the southeast Southeastern Pond Management can evaluate the health of your pond and then work with you individually to put together the right plan to get what you want out of your body of water. Through electrofishing, liming, fertilizing, and stocking and weed control, Southeastern Pond Management is the one-stop shop to help you produce more healthy trophy fish than ever before. Schedule an obligation-free consultation today. Call one 888 830-POND or email info at southeastpond.com and brought to you by Fish Bites. Whether you're hitting the sand with set rigs, using traditional scent strips for pompano, or fishing the flats and marshes for speckled trout, redfish, and flounder, Fish Bites has something for you. Family owned and operated in St. Augustine, Florida, they pride themselves on making reliably consistent fishing products for anglers of all ages all around the world. Fish Bites baits and lures are made with pride in the Sunshine State here in USA. Check out the full line of scented saltwater and freshwater baits at fishbites.com. Anyway, I will I will get off. I feel like we've done a lot of, of moralizing um, and we'll end on kind of a, a more fun note. I know that you do a lot of traveling um, and kind of some backcountry mm-hmm. stuff. And man, I eat that up and I don't get to do as much of it as I used to do. But is, is there a good story you can share with me? Is there a particularly memorable 
red eye bass trip you've had, or I know that you've spent a lot of time in the in the Smokies and that part of the country chasing a uh, native brook trout too. So is there just a really good trip that you've had, a fun story, something? It can be something that was fun for you, or it can be something that'd be fun for us to hear. If you got a story about the time that you fell and broke your rod and all that, we like we <laughs> yeah, like those stories those. too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I have a lot of red eye bass stories because one thing I haven't mentioned is, I mean, I almost exclusively fish for red eye bass these days and, and have for the past decade. And that doesn't mean I don't fish for other things occasionally, but I mean, by and large, that's, that's, the, that's my, what the, the fishing I do is for red eye bass. So there's a, there's a lot of stories, you know, one of the, this isn't really a story, but just something I would encourage, you know, maybe people to do every year. I have some, a couple of buddies in South Carolina and we do what we call red eye camp where every year we go somewhere different as a, uh, you know, kind of a base camp. And we will, you know, if possible, rent a cabin, tent camp, whatever is required, you know, take some steaks, burgers, you know, leftover deer tenderloins, wild turkey breasts, you know, just clean out the freezer for, for, for meat. Yeah. Um, and just just have fun uh you know drinking beer at night grilling talking about fishing hunting whatever comes up in conversation but during the day we go out and we fish these different red eye streams it's a lot of fun uh and so there's a lot of stories based off that but if i were to pick one story so um it's a particular fish particular experience that i had in red eye fishing which is probably the most memorable i've had to date so when i was Early into my PhD project, this would have been 2018, I was working with some of the uh, District 2 fisheries biologists to collect samples to kind of establish a genetic reference for what these different species should look like, you know, as far as genetic profile goes. And in doing that, you know, you're basically targeting the upper headwater areas, trying to get to be, you know, the purest population possible for each of those species. And I remember fishing small mountain stream. I, I believe it was Talladega. Yeah, Talladega National Forest. You know, I had a fly rod getting teased by a couple of the biologists that had, you know, spinning rods with uh, <laughs> uh, inline spinners and, uh, you know, something else. And, we came to this uh, one section of stream where there was just this beautiful waterfall. And there's many of these, you know, in, in the National Forest in Alabama. There's a lot of waterfalls. And this particular one had a, a sizable pool beneath it. And, I mean, my mouth was watering as soon as I saw it. And I'm like, man, this is about to be amazing. And I was trying to get down there first because I knew that once they start throwing those freaking spinners across and fan cast and everything they were going to cover the pool and there was two of them and one of me and i had limited casting opportunity you know because i've got to deal with all these overhanging branches and things like that behind me that allow me to cast where i need to cast and so it's going to be it's, it's just going to be hard i'm already kind of handicapped so i was trying to get there first i did but i you know the first few casts it was like just nothing happened it was almost like the pool was dead and um <clears throat> caught a few eventually caught a few you know red-breasted sunfish super aggressive, you know, made my heart stop because I thought I had a red eye. And then they started catching some red eye, but they were, they were catching red eye that were, I'd say six to eight inches was the biggest. Mm-hmm. And I, I was, I was still just like, man, I, I just want to catch one. I don't care if it's eight inches. I just want to catch one 
in this setting because this is amazing. It's almost like you want a connection, you know, to that place. Like I yeah. just have to catch one here. And so I, I continued to cast and they, they kind of did their thing and they're like, all right, we're going to move on downstream. I was like, I'll go ahead. I'm going to stay right here. But again, I have to catch one here. And uh, I, you know, kept casting. And finally I was like, you know what? Let me cast. Maybe instead of standing at the tail out of the pool, casting toward the head, I'm going to switch. I'm going to go stand at the head of the pool and cast toward the tail out. And so I, I did that and I cast all the way to the other side that I was from where I was standing to the tail out of the pool before it dropped down to the next run. And I don't remember, to be honest, I don't remember if I popped the fly at that point or if I just let it just plop down and, and just sit there. But I remember seeing a wake come from <laughs> the opposite or, or from that same side of the shore, but from the shallows, just, I mean, just barreling towards my, my fly. And it was a Google bug popper. And I had my little Cabela CGR two weight. So, I mean, again, not an expensive fly rod. And this fish, it's like it went to my fly, like a submarine coming to it, and then just immediately gained elevation right at my fly. It hit my fly, you know, ate the fly, porpoised up like a dolphin, and just, you know, like a, like a whale or something just fell back in, you know, the water. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I remember setting the hook and just immediately feeling, you know, that this is a – I mean, it's the largest red eye I've ever caught. So I knew that it was a big fish because I, I knew what a typical red eye felt like at this point. And, you know, I fought the fish for probably only a minute or two, but it probably seemed like 30 minutes. I had a net with me. So I was, the, the biologist already moved downstream. So I was by myself up there. I had a net. And so I'm trying to like net this fish, but not lose it. And so, you know, that fiberglass rod being a six and a half inch or six foot and a half inch, six foot, six inch rod uh, was bent all the way, you know, over when I was, I was trying to net this fish. You know, it, it, what always happens when you're, you got a big fish, you know, you're like, you're bumping it with the, the edge of the net and it spooks off and doesn't have to run. And you're like, oh my God, I'm going to lose this fish because I'm, I can't net it. And, um, <laughs> Finally got it in the net and it was just like, holy cow, what have I done? Because again, I've, I've never caught a red eye this size anywhere, much less in this tiny mountain stream in the middle of the forest, you know, after two biologists just ripped, you know, spinner baits and everything else through this pool. It was just this very surreal experience. And I, I remember just looking at the fish, just being amazed at its size, its color. You know, it still had all the blue and the, the red and the fins, and it was just this beautiful bronze color. And I just, I just, you know, just kind of sat there, I think, for a minute, just stunned that I, I had just done this. And, of course, you know, we're, we were taking samples. So, I mean, I took a fin clip for genetic analysis. I, um, we uh, took a, a length measurement. Um, and so the fish measured 12 and three-quarter inches, which is by far the biggest you know, certified pure red eye bass I've ever caught and that, that we've caught through all the studies that we've done and fish that we've electrofished and, you know, sampled and things. Just a, an absolute beautiful fish, both both size and color, you know, just, just kind of your quintessential red eye bass. And the ADC and our guys, actually, they aged all the fish that we were taking at this point, and they aged that fish, and it was a 10-year-old fish 
I obviously tested it because I had I had a fin clip and it was genetically pure uh bass, which I would expect up there. There were no Alabama bass up that high. And so I think just the, the totality of that experience, like, you know, that's kind of the, the culmination of what I love about red-eye bass fishing is I caught this, this, this trophy red-eye bass in this trophy setting, you know, um, where, you know, that fish has been for 10 years. It was just, it was just amazing to me. I mean, that, that was one of the, the highlights of my career in fly fishing for red-eye bass. Um, and I haven't had one to, to equal that experience. I mean, I've caught some nice fish and certainly a couple more, you know, 12 inches or a little bit bigger, but just, just that, that initial experience and just how it went down and where it went down. I don't think I'll ever, ever top. That's a good story. I know that, uh, most, most of my endeavors in the outdoors is the same thing you say, right? Like it's nice to catch a trophy, but my most memorable, like I can tell you off the top of my head, one of the coolest deer I ever shot. He was a big deer, but I killed him on top of a shell midden. People, you know, say Indian mm-hmm. mound like a trash heap in the yeah. middle of just some real pretty woods, a place that it was just pretty. It was kind of cool. Like I'd picked up pottery shards out there and he was bedded down on the edge of that swamp on that dry ground that was formed by that midden. And, and then I can tell you last year, me and a buddy got on a duck hunt and we shot one duck that day. <laughs> we shot one mm-hmm. wood duck. But he was about the prettiest duck I've ever shot, and it was when we had that ice storm. So, like, the whole Tupelo mm-hmm. swamp, it was just iced over. Just everything was glazed, icicles on the trees, just beautiful, crisp, clear, bluebird sky. And the picture I have of that duck sitting on that sheet ice is just, like, even without the photograph, it's just ingrained in my memory. Is is just a culmination of awesome things, like awesome scenery, awesome specimen, you know, awesome memories with good friends. Like you were talking about your red eye excursion that you go on. I, that is increasingly more and more important to me as, as a hunter and an outdoorsman is the memories that you have. Man, I got some some videos on my phone of some campfire cut-ups that have gone on at deer mm-hmm. camp in recent mm-hmm. years where, you know, somebody's playing a guitar and, and somebody is making up a blues song. You know, we've done just eight, yeah. two pounds, two pounds of red meat a piece. And, you know, we're working on, working on that, <laughs> no whatever's in that right. cooler, no <laughs> vegetables. No, you don't eat vegetables at deer camp. So you're sitting there, you know, got the meat sweats and trying to cure them with, with whatever's in that cooler. And, and then just, you know, freestyle singing, cutting up everybody about, having such a good time you got people about tripping following the campfire and uh it just stays in your mind you know it's a good time the camaraderie the scenery that's that's the stuff you live for right you sit there and you work 40 hours a week and that's why you know is is just to have those yeah and and all of that you know i think just to bring it full circle with red eye bass is i mean it's about those experiences because it's certainly not going to win any you know contests for for weight and inches um, you know, it's just not a fish that's going to do that. It's not if, if you're a person that has to catch big fish or or the most fish to to have a big fish fry or something like that. That's it, just not going to be a fish that's going to meet your expectations. But if you're looking for something that's just completely, I mean, unique in not only the fly fishing world but just the bass world in general, um, a unique fishing opportunity that that takes you back to some of the you know, more wild, remote places in the southeast. 
um, you would be hard pressed to find a fishing opportunity that would that would beat red eye bass for that absolutely well i think that's a good place to end the podcast but before we go uh matt if people want more information about red eye bass you do kind of have the monopoly on that tell us a little bit about your book that you wrote yeah so i um in 2018 so before i had it's actually kind of the the uh, catalyst for me coming back to do a phd i wrote uh fly fishing for red eye bass an adventure across southern waters that you can get on amazon or uh, local orvis stores or even deep south fly shop some other fly shops across the southeast you pick up a copy but yeah it was, it was basically a conservation book uh, that was disguised as a how-to fly fishing guide. Uh, so you get a little bit of both to kind of, if you're interested, learn more about red eye bass. And then also have now have a website that's redeyebassflyfishing.com that has a lot of information as well on red eye bass and some of the things that we've you know got going as far as the red eye bass slam. You know, get how to how to get a certificate, which uh, by the way, yours should be arriving soon. Uh, I mailed it earlier in the week, so you should get it there tomorrow, hopefully. Oh, heck yeah. Um, but uh yeah, side note. Um but yeah, so there's and then Instagram, you know, Red Eye Bass Fly Fishing, um, there's Facebook group, Fly Fishing for Red Eye Bass. Uh, you know, there's a lot of outlets for you to, to get more information, uh, most of which I have created. But again, it's all it's all a way to um promote the species in a positive light and help people understand how how special and unique it is, and uh, also to help them understand some of the different uh, conservation challenges that, that those different species are facing across their native range, just so that they're aware. Absolutely, and I can attest that uh, you wrote an extremely effective book because I was able to read that book and go out and catch red-eye bass, and it definitely accomplished both goals, right? It was a fishing book, and it also got me much more interested. Um, I've been interested in my local riverways and the health of those but it uh really got me fired up about some of that stuff a little further upstream and uh i'll tell all my my folks local to south alabama it's all the same waterway like we put it's like matt was saying like we put names to things so that we can manage them and distinguish between them but it's all the the mobile basin is huge and everything that runs by my backyard in in the delta you know, it was really neat to go kind of see the headwaters of that waterway. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also see along the way, every little place that you see, every beer can, every, you know, every time you see a silt fence that's got a rip in it and you have sediment running into it, that's your water too. Or that's, that's my water. That's not just Black Warrior problems, you know, that turns into Mobile Delta problems. So, right. Awesome book, awesome resource. Y'all be sure to check out his book, check out his website. And I've got two. I, I bought it originally as a Kindle book because I wanted to read it right now. But I, I do mm-hmm. have a, a a copy coming. They actually sent me when I joined the uh, Native Fish Coalition. So that's another way you guys can get the book. Um, I think it's signed is what I read, is that, is that if you join the Native Fish Coalition, uh, you get a hat and a T-shirt and uh, some other stuff. So it's a good, good yeah. way to support a good cause and get some goodies in your mailbox. Absolutely. Well, Matt, I definitely appreciate your time. I know this has been a longer podcast than usual, but I think it's uh, going to be useful for our listeners. And I appreciate having you on, and I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks. No, I had a blast, and happy to talk red eye bass anytime. Absolutely.
Well, folks, that wraps up this week's special segment with Dr. Matthew Lewis. Y'all be sure to check out his book. Uh, We'll be back next week with our normal freshwater fishing report. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. If you'd like for us to email you the podcast, just text FISHING to 314-665-1767. Again, just text the word FISHING to 314-665-1767. Subscribe to our email list and we'll send you the new show each week. This week's Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Texas Hunter. Since 1954, Texas Hunter Products has delivered the finest quality fish and game feeders and hunting blinds in the industry. To learn more, visit TexasHunter.com. And by Hilton's Real-Time Navigator, bringing you the highest quality online satellite fishing charts since 2004. Your source for sea temps, allometry, currents, and water color at hiltonsoffshore.com. Also brought to you by Bucks Island. Bucks Island has been in business since 1948 for all of your new and used boat needs, as well as motor sales and service, and now they have a pro-level tackle store. Boat and motor trade-ins are welcome. Visit them online at bucksisland.com or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And brought to you by Fish Bites. Whether you're hitting the sand with set rig or fishing the flats and marshes for speckled trout, redfish, and flounder, Fish Bites has something for you. Check out the full line of scented saltwater and freshwater baits at fishbites.com. And by Mallard Bay. Book your next guided hunting or fishing trip with thoroughly vetted guides or charters. Plan trips, buy gear, go experience. Mallardbay.com. Also brought to you by Hayabusa. Hayabusa Fishing, extremely well known for their premium sabiki rigs, But also, don't forget their full line of saltwater hooks and jigs, as well as freshwater bass hooks. See what you've been missing at HayabusaFishing.com.